You're listening to the Jack Straw Writers Programme podcast. Resident writer Myrna Hecht sat down for an interview with programme curator Judith Roche. I've always loved stories. And when I was a little girl, my, I had working parents. And my parents were often gone not only in the daytime but in the evenings. And I also had a, a long string of assorted babysitters. And I loved fairy tales as a little girl. And I would meet my babysitters at the door, and I would always say to them, don't talk, read. And I would hold them my Grimm's fairy tale books, and they would read to me. So I fed myself on stories, and I still frame the world in in that way. I assign caricatures to people or fairy tale characters. I just, I kind of see the world as story. And my grandfather was a brilliant, wonderful storyteller. He played the banjo and the mandolin. He was my hero when I was a little girl. I wanted to be like him, and I'm sure that's part of the reason I grew up and became a storyteller. As a storyteller, you make up these stories, or do you mostly tell stories you've learned? I mostly tell stories I've learned. I never memorize them, though. I'm trying to keep what I call the conventions of oral tradition. So when I learn a story, I embody it. I learn it with my body. And when I tell it, I bring to it whatever it is I have. And that's what I tell people who are learning stories. Make it your own in some way. And that's how you keep, I think, a story alive. Now you'll hear selections from her live performance at Jack Straw Productions. Myrna is a storyteller, a poet, an educator, and a social activist. Myrna has gone out of her way to work with kids in trouble again and again, with kids with cancer, at the Bridges Center for Grieving Children, with kids in detention centers, and facilities for homeless homeless youth. She's, she's an active worker for children, especially children in trouble. Please welcome Verna. Thank you, Judith. Even though what seems like an inordinate amount of time in my life is spent teaching in the classroom or other settings, and then when I'm not in a classroom, I feel like I'm in the kitchen because cooking calms me down. And when I'm not teaching or cooking, I'm fretting about the world. So that's pretty much what I do. I fret, I cook, I teach. And I write about all those three things. So this is titled Kitchen Confidential. It's the first of two food poems, teaching poems, fretting about the world poems. Kitchen Confidential. Steam curls itself into my kitchen windows dampens and sugars the air. The canning vat, volcanic. I know this rhythm, bubbling heat, the importance of timing, the five minutes needed to process fruit at sea level. You will fare well in my kitchen, where a cornmeal dumpling with freshly picked blueberries puckered beneath golden crust surprises you with cardamom, lime, and cassis. Guarded recipes for keeping the hungry mouth of the world's pain on the other side of the kitchen door. Yet, when my timer rings, I know a different device 
for keeping time is calibrated to the minute's explosion. And in a kitchen, halfway across the world, another woman's spices and hopes are ground down to nothing. It takes a cornmeal dumpling 20 minutes at 375 degrees. Blast of warmth in my face, leaning into the oven, while a car bomb with incinerated heat closes in on open stalls, takes the hands that held a market basket while reaching for olives. Not long ago, in a room I rarely visit, where a pen lays to rest on a small desk as if napping with me between teaching children and taking in a secret fragrance that steeps like tea bags in my stirred-up kitchen, I thought about entering a war poetry contest. The rules said, no poems about dead children. Still, they die, and they die. Why not get lost in what we love? The world hurts us anyway. How else to provide a feathered taste of sweetness but to allow a morning's work of preserving to shine through glass jars like the round eyes of my third graders, this pinch of inviolate joy while I know the ingredients for violets that haunt the world are without measure. Another food poem. This one has a much different take. Starts with a quote by the poet Roke Dalton. He says, I believe poetry, like bread, is for everyone, in the unanimous blood of those who struggle. Breaking bread. I don't know much about the bread that Abdi, Farah, and Hodan, my students from Somalia, eat. I don't know what ingredients are needed into the dough of their survival. I don't even know if it's flatbread or risen. Farah writes how once he put his ear to a road in Mogadishu and heard an aria how he can still see children playing a jumping game, caught in a leaping moment, lifted from the sad streets. Hodan says her blood is lost because it still belongs to the flag of her Somali star. Abdi tells me his mother has sworn him to secrecy how his father has already used an entire month's earnings to surprise him with what will be his first suit for graduation, Abdi, whose heart is like a beautiful fruit, tender and exposed, who tells me he believes this is an America that will allow him to become a lawyer for truth and justice, even a judge. Children of goat's milk, red dust, stringy chicken, scarcity of grain and water, you tell me even the Somali wind that once sang your lullabies is a cutthroat wanderer who drifts in each night with his blood smell of tribal battle. 
thinking of Somalia, brown hands over open fires, bread shared in a circle of wizened eyes, hungers beyond my imagining, my thoughts leap to a restaurant table in Seattle, though it could be San Francisco, Sun Valley, Aspen, New York, with a waiter who says, my name is Josh and I'll be your server tonight, where the privilege dip focaccia or ciabatta in olive oil with balsamic, read the novellas that menus have become, assure themselves the eggs are local, the cheese artisan, the ostrich organic. What if the next fad pulls its self-important palate away from local gardens and imported foods from war zones are packaged for the hungers of the well-fed. Goat meat or entrails from Somalia, a pilaf or pounded grains from Sudan, fresh Iraqi dates covered with bitter chocolate, a Louisiana gumbo made over an open fire for lack of a stove. It could happen. It could happen that the bread of struggle will be sold as the empathy of eating. I want to tell Farah, Hodan, and Abdi that I know about chickens, how they lay eggs warm in the hand with yolks that are simply determined truths of yellow, that I am not impressed with the notion of slow food because many of us already know whatever is at high speed is dangerous, and we don't need Josh to tell us what the old French or Basque, Ghanaian, or Somali farmers' hands have been doing for centuries, and that I wish Abdi could become a judge, and that good bread and its unanimous communion would be what we learn to break together. This is a travel <coughs> poem, except that I can't escape my fretting about the state of the world even when I'm in France, and it's called St. Eve's. St. <clears throat> Eve's. On holiday, between bites of buckwheat galettes and swigs of yeasty cider, I could not forget the lies my country told when it started the killing in Iraq, even in this small country church in Brittany, where the English side of the tourist brochure told me I was in the shrine of St. Eve's, patron saint of justice, of the poor, and the unmothered I could not forget. Sunlight hung in quiet ropes. The hushed church shadowed like a forest. I was moved to light three white votives at the foot of this saint. The fixity of time swirled in his stone robe, I wanted his hands to turn into white doves. I wanted his hands to become small thatched roofs for shelter. I wanted to see his hands working the blessings. I whispered to him, take the flames from these small white candles. Leave them to burn. Leave them to burn for the women and children whose lives my country has broken who waver, dazed, and thin-legged like clipped-winged birds caught in a deadening winter. 
I wanted to tell St. Eve about my lack of faith, its substance hard like the gargoyles who adorned his church roof, their grotesque tails and hissing tongues locked in snarling contempt. I wanted to believe in the mermaids carved on the cornices, that their breath laden with salt was a time-worn wish to wash us clean with what the sea has always been. I wanted St. Eve's to kneel down with me on the orphaned edge of the war. I wanted to ask him if I could lay something of my country's shame at his altar, what then? And last of all, I'm going to close with a poem. It's a series of pieces about children who are dealing with life-threatening illness or loss. A poet's work. She has come to sit next to me, rolled her wheelchair close. What is it that causes her to tremble? I cannot figure such wind in the small, bare branches of what she brings. I ask her, what do you love to do? I love to swing. I love to learn about the world and stuff. We look with wonder at what is on the table, a basket of seashells, two are conch shells, gnarled like a troll's nose on the outside. Inside, a rouged, silky lining flings itself into a cleft of disappearance. I tell her I know a story of the sea, about a selkie, a human child on the land who, longing for his true form, returns to the sea, leaving his mother with an ache of loss. Yet each year he returns, not as human child, but as great gray seal, tells his mother's stories, brings her dreams. We take a piece of paper. I write, inside the magic seashell, you can hear the dreams of. I ask, what do you hear? What is dreaming? She writes, the dreams of the sand dollar and the orange, pink, and gold that the sunset paints on the water. We work together. I cast another question her way. What do you taste? She writes, I can taste the beautiful, magical sand, the coral reefs, and the candy cane stripes of the fish, the decorations, and strange writings on the waters. I can taste the salt in the story and the seal's sadness. I can only wonder where any of us come from. How is it? Today, I am here in love with words, their sea change of irony. And this child, soft as feather down with her brittle diagnosis, how is it she sits next to me in this clinically arranged room of glass and steel, cold as the moon? I listen as if to the sound of waves inside the promise of a conch shell, my ears open to the mystery that lives whirled inside her heart. Thank you very much. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2008 curator of this program is Judith Roche. Music performed by Matt Weiner and Del Ray and recorded through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. 
Recording engineers are Mo Preventure and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Amy Broomhall. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, the Mayor's Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.